A reading from the eighth chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Weird. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said all of this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. By the time I left, I had already been leaving for a while. I read these words in an essay by Dr. Brittany Cooper last week. Cooper is a professor of women and gender studies at Rutgers University and an increasingly popular public intellectual. You might have seen her well-known book, Eloquent Rage, around on the internet or an airport bookstore. She writes about Black feminism, hip-hop, and activism, and has some good stuff to say about Beyonce, pop music, social change. In the essay I read by her last week, she tells the story of her long, unexpected, and painful breakup with what she calls dogmatic Christianity. The story is filled with ups and downs. For example, she remembers the day when she lost her trusty WWJD bracelet. This is a real down in the story. She says she wondered for a moment if her having lost it was a sign that God didn't think she was a worthy wearer of it anymore. She worried that God had found out that she was questioning the things she was taught to believe and took the, the bracelet away as a sign. She says she honestly felt panicked for a bit. Or maybe a little bit more seriously, she remembers the weight of daily anxiety that she carried for the first 30 or so years of her life, wondering if she would burn in hell due to the severity of her sins. This emphasis on God's wrath left her feeling, quote, inadequate and unworthy. Eventually, she lost her desire to pray, and she lost her desire to continue to be a part of this thing called Christianity. And so one day, she left. But as Cooper describes it, her break with dogmatic Christianity was not a singular event that she can pinpoint. She's not sure if it began when people in her Sunday school class told her to not ask questions about the sexual, sexual exploitation of women in the Bible. Or maybe it was the day at 28 years old that she turned up at a church that wasn't Baptist for the first time. Or perhaps she wonders it was much, much later. All she can say is that by the time I had left, I had already been leaving for a while. Cooper's words struck me because they capture something that's really true about the type of transformations that we go through in life, especially the transformations that entail leaving something well-known, trusted, and familiar behind. 
and changing our minds about those things. Even if we don't make a complete break, coming to a new understanding of those things. This sort of transformation, it takes a lot of time. Sometimes lots of time. Even if we're leaving something that we might know on some level isn't good for us or that we have outgrown, even if we can feel it deep in our guts and deep in our bones that we need to make the change, leaving tends to go on for a while. The gravity of the familiar draws us back again. And so how do we as human beings change? Transformation is right at the core of Christianity, this call to repentance that Tim talked about in a previous sermon, but transformation doesn't just happen overnight. And so those of you who participated in our Bible study constellation group last season will know that there's a motif in the Gospel of Mark known as the Messianic secret. So this refers to the um, repeated event in the Gospel of Mark in particular, where Jesus tells his followers not to tell anyone who he is. There's a good amount of debate about why Jesus does this, but it certainly remains one of the more puzzling features of the gospel. But it also has an impact on how we read the gospel. It draws our, our attention right to the question, who is Jesus and why is his identity so, um, so groundbreaking that it needs to be kept secret? What's the deal with the secret? And so one of the most striking instances of the messianic secret Motif appears here in the eighth chapter of Mark that we read today. In this part of the story, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he asks them who other people say that he is. And so the disciples dutifully and rightly tell him, Oh, Jesus, they think that you're John the Baptist. They think you're Elijah, a prophet. And so then Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, characteristically bold, answers, you are the Messiah. And so this is a big deal because up to this point, no human being had identified Jesus as the Messiah. Actually, some demons had identified him earlier, but that's a story for another day. And yet, after this moment of Peter getting the answer right for the first time, knowing who Jesus is, identifying Jesus, telling the other disciples correctly, Jesus immediately and frustratingly tells Peter and the disciples, not to tell anyone about who he is. And then, to make things even more confusing and challenging, Jesus starts telling his disciples that he's going to have to undergo great suffering and be rejected by all the religious authority figures and make things worse, be killed. And then, so matter-of-factly that it's almost comical, he tells them, then I will rise again. And so, all of this talk about suffering and death must have come as a real shock to the disciples. Up until that point, they had seen Jesus complete miracle after miracle, feeding crowds, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind. This would have been a radically different idea of who Jesus was than the Jesus that they had come to know. And so Peter, evidently, could not accept this information, this complete 180 from the Jesus that he had come to know and trust. So, completely shaken, he rebukes Jesus. I imagine him saying, oh my gosh, come on, Jesus, that's extreme, and there's got to be another way. I've seen you do all of these miraculous, unbelievable things before. We can figure this out. You don't need to suffer 
and you certainly don't need to die. But Jesus rebukes Peter right back. Get behind me, Satan, he says, which, by the way, is Hasatan, which translates to adversary. Get behind me, adversary. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but human things. This must have felt like whiplash to Peter. One instance recognizing Jesus as Messiah, the next being told that the Messiah's life was not going to look at all the way that he expected. I can't help but think that Peter felt the ground shift under him in that moment. He felt his grip on reality start to slip. So naturally, he wanted to hold on to his idea of who Jesus was even tighter. This is understandable. Peter was really struggling to change his mind about who he thought Jesus was, who he thought the Messiah was going to be. Even though Jesus had just told him directly, you need to change your mind. You need to let this old thing go and make space for this new understanding that I have revealed to you, this new truth. Peter, he couldn't just do it like that, just snap his fingers and make his entire world look different. And so, again, if change is core to what we're called to do in this um, life of Christianity, this life of faith, of seeking God, how are we going to do it? Well, the story might make things a little bit more frustrating and complicated before it makes it better. Because after Jesus rebukes Peter, he calls a crowd over to join in on the conversation. And that's when he gives this challenging and paradoxical teaching. Jesus says, if any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. So, taken out of the context of Peter's prior exchange with Jesus, we might be inclined to interpret this as like a programmatic moralism. As if Jesus is saying, self-denial, for the sake of self-denial, is the point. That kind of approach to this text might be especially tempting in the season of Lent, when we hear a lot of talk about giving something up. During the season, it might even seem that refraining from eating chocolate for 40 days or avoiding social media is somehow important to God. But religious practices like fasting are not really meant for God's sake, but for ours. They're intended to teach us something true about God or about ourselves that we have a tendency to forget, or to remind us of something that we resist because it feels so different than our daily life experiences. Lots of these things that are true about God and about ourselves are really hard for us to feel or reliable in our daily lives because they're so countercultural. They're things like, even if you do something really embarrassing or really harmful, you're still loved. I mean, this runs right up against the idea of retributive justice that's so normative in our society and the ways that we tend to think about punishment. Or truths like, even if you take a risk and leave the safety and security of the familiar, and then you find yourself in your worst nightmare, feeling lost and alone, even then, you're not alone. This runs up, the, up against the kind of conservative um, tendencies that it's better just to stick with the status quo because at least the status quo is a known factor and staying there is better than risking possible failure of making a change. 
even if it's a necessary change. And so we have these practices, these spiritual practices, um, as ways for us to internalize these truths about ourselves, these truths about God that run up against common sense. And I wonder, I wonder if what Jesus is saying in this passage in context of the prior exchange with Peter is an invitation to a challenging type of spiritual practice. The practice of being changed, of changing our minds, of letting God actually change who we thought we were, of what we thought our lives were going to look like, of the direction that we were going to go. And so how in the season of Lent, how are we going to practice being open to this sort of change, this sort of self-denial that opens us up into a radically different at times way of experiencing ourselves and experiencing the world? Well, if you've chatted with me in the past nine months or so, you've almost certainly talk about, heard me talk about climbing, because the truth is I've gotten a little bit obsessed with it of late, and I talk about it kind of all the time. And while that's a little bit embarrassing because it's a complete stereotype about people who get into climbing, I'm about to do it again, so bear with me. So something that's become immediately apparent to me about climbing is you have to be in a really regular rhythm of gripping one handhold and then intentionally letting it go to move up to the next one. I mean, as much as you might want to hold on to one handhold for dear life, especially when you get up high or have to make a big move, inevitably, you're going to have to let go and release your grip at some point if you're actually going to make any progress. The truth is, this letting go is often terrifying. So terrifying, in fact, that one of the most common experiences I have in climbing is being halfway up a wall and finding myself frozen. I'm willing to experience the one second of vulnerability that it would take to let go of my hand and move it to the next hold. This results in a self-defeating experience of exhausting my hands and fingers to the point that my grip starts to slip. And so I either fall off the wall or have to just climb down and take a break. And the truth is, this willingness to open up your grip and let go even for just a second it doesn't come easily. It takes practice and it takes intention. A good portion of my time at the climbing gym is actually spent standing or sitting on the ground, looking up at the handhold that I got stuck on last time and giving myself a little pep talk. Okay, next time you go, just try and let go. Just try and let go. That's your only goal. And so I sit there and I focus and I try and work up the courage to the next time I try. Just, just let go. And the truth is, it doesn't always work. Sometimes I get up there to the same spot and I get stuck again in fear. Other times I get up there and I'm finally brave enough to move my hand, but then I slip and I fall. And so what that has led me to is a realization that even more than letting go, that learning to let go, there's also this process of developing trust. Trust that the mount will be there to catch you when you fall. And so, big fan of introspection and self-reflection that I am, what I've learned about myself through this practice of climbing, of giving my pep, myself pep talks to let go, is a really 
undeniable reckoning, look in the mirror with the ways that I struggle to let go in a lot of areas in my life. I'm not going to go through the laundry list of all of those ways because I wouldn't be able to let go of the things that I left off the list, but just trust me, my struggle with letting go is a real uh, obstacle in my life. But I suspect I'm not alone in that. The truth is, letting go of what we know, leaving the places where we're comfortable, leaving the familiar, trying out a new way of living or being, is a deeply terrifying thing for a lot of us. I mean, it's the sort of thing that we work on for like years in therapy. And so even if we know that letting go is vital to our life, making this change, leaving this job, this relationship, whatever it is, changing the ways that we think about something, the ways that we relate to religion, even if we know that those things would be good for us, there is something deep in us most of the time that would rather hold on. I mean, grasping is one of our most basic instincts as human beings. Newborn babies are born with a, a literal grasping reflex. If you've ever touched a newborn's baby's palm, they'll curl their tiny fingers around yours. They'll hold on tight. It's really cute. But it also, I think, shows us something deeply true about us as human beings. We want to hold on. But in order for us to live our lives in a way that reflects what God says is true about us and, and what God says is true about the world, we need to let go intentionally of our limited ideas about what is true so that we can make space for what God says is true. Like Peter, we have to intentionally let go of ideas that once felt like anchors to us and make space for new information. Like Dr. Hooper, we might have to go to new places, leave communities that used to feel like home to us, and go somewhere unfamiliar. Like me, stuck up there on the climbing wall, we'll have to risk letting go of that handhold that feels like the only thing keeping us from a terrifying fall and let go trusting that the mat will be there to catch us when we do. Because we will fall. Inevitably, change will bring us through periods of falling. It will leave us feeling utterly lost at times, wanting to rebuke God, rebuke Jesus, rebuke uh, the world around us in frustration. But in order to save your life, you must be willing to lose it. In order to save your life, you must be willing to lose it. What if Jesus' teaching is not meant to shame us, but is really just a realistic description of what it feels like to let go? My hope for us in the season of Lent is that it can be one where we practice internalizing the idea that on the other side of great loss, there is new life. That this season can be a time where we take um, some time to intentionally look back on periods in our lives where we felt like we were absolutely lost and draw connections to how those periods of being lost were essential to leading us to the place where we are now. I hope that in this season, each of us can take some time to identify the things in our lives that we might be invited, might be being invited to let go of, or that if we are in the middle of some of a big change and transformation in our, in our lives right now, if we're letting something go intentionally or by force, that we might find hope in the teaching of the Easter season, that there is new life even after 
great loss, even after death. And so at root, that's what this idea of giving something up symbolizes for us. It is not meant to show us that we um, that God wants our suffering, God wants our self-denial. It is meant to show that God is with us even after great loss, even after we've let something go, even in the midst of lostness, God is there. In the season of Lent, my prayer is that you might hear the question, what do I need to let go as an invitation to more life? And that you might find ways to practice, even in little ways, even if you fall, letting go, knowing that you won't be alone, even if you feel lost. God will meet you and catch you right there. Amen.